This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I'm thrilled to introduce our speaker tonight. Dr. Gregory Daniels is an associate clinical professor of medicine in the Division of Hematology Oncology at UC San Diego School of Medicine, and he leads the UC San Diego Moore's Cancer Center's Clinical Melanoma program. His research involves deciphering the link between autoimmunity and tumor immunity, as well as developing more effective and less toxic vaccines and immune stimulatory approaches for patients with melanoma. That is a mouthful. We are thrilled to have him here tonight, so please welcome Dr. Daniels. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me in. And I just wanted to take a couple moments to uh, set the frame for what I'm about to do to you. And that is um, show you a little bit of my world. I'm I'm a medical oncologist. And so I was asked to comment on on prevention. And I deliberately put treatment in front of prevention because I'm not a dermatologist. I have friends that are dermatologists who constantly remind me of that, that I'm not a dermatologist. And, And while we can speak about sunscreens and sun protective strategies. I'm happy to do that, but I'm gonna come again at it from a different angle of treatment. And then we'll get into what seems to be maybe a logical approach to prevention. Okay? So get ready to become medical oncologist for a second. And uh, skin cancer is a pretty broad topic, right? I mean, I actually, my role over at the cancer center is actually skin cancer. I do do all the melanomas, but skin cancers, basal cells, squamous cells, Merkel cells, sarcomas, it's just the skin does a lot of stuff. And uh, I also run the head and neck program over there. And then I'm at the VA and I do general oncology. And that's where I actually am gonna take it. I'm gonna broaden a little bit. So skin cancer is already a broad topic and I'm gonna say cancer, but I'm gonna use melanoma as my example. Okay, so we're going to talk about treatments in melanoma, some prevention, but this is this I think is applicable to um, the broad issue of cancer. And uh, what is cancer? So I've tried to put all the references on the slides. If you guys um, are interested in going and looking at these, most of them are not my graphics, but it's just a very simple idea that cancer is an unregulated growth. Mutations have happened, signals are are going that are inappropriate, and cancer is growing. Um, And the incidence of cancer, obviously, for most cancers, increases with age. Melanoma is not an exception to this rule. Here's uh, the general incidence for uh, melanoma. You can see it it ranks up there pretty high, not quite as high as your other ones, prostate or breast, but uh, it's respectable. And the incidence, and this is in men, so Caucasian men, uh, the incidence is is coming up to be about a a 1 in 30 lifetime risk. So so fairly fairly high. Um, That's new. Something's gone wrong. Um, About 100 years ago, the melanoma really wasn't a problem. Uh, It was a problem for a very few number of people, and the incidence was probably, instead of 1 in 30, more like a 1 in 1,000 or 1 in 1,500 lifetime risk. So things have have really changed. 
it's not necessarily that our genetics have changed, but we're changing our lifestyle. So something out there, something that we're doing is influencing this cancer incidence. Continues to happen despite lots of public health messages. Um, I don't need to see the raise of hand, but I'm sure most of you practice sun safe practices, sunscreen, sun protection, and yet um, across all age groups, including those older than 65, incidence of melanoma continues to rise year after year. We're making zero progress as far as I'm concerned on this problem. So hopefully tonight you guys are going to figure it out and give us a new direction. Um, because melanoma itself is, is a problem, um, we like to catch things early. Early is that changing spot on your skin that you get checked out quickly because there's a small chance that it could be something dangerous like a melanoma. So a changing spot, a spot that spit, sticks out over the background, that's our best defense, is an early removal. And that would be something like a stage one. And on this curve, stage one patients generally do a lot better than if you wait for that spot to start to bleed or change or spread. And that's where we get down to the bottom curve, which is a stage four, uh, looking at survival for melanoma. And this is just old data. So what do I do all day? Um, I, I think about melanomas a lot. And um, Patients come in and, and we talk about therapies for advanced disease, and this is just a, a slide showing some of my preferred and uh, other active agent choices that are out there. Um, one of them is clinical trials, and we do a lot of clinical trials for melanoma still. Um, but I list these not for you to take diligent notes, uh, but to just tell you that there's two general classes of therapies here. Um, under the preferred regimens, Chemotherapy is not one of them. So we don't use chemo as our first choice in melanoma, unlike other cancers uh, where we use a lot of chemo. Um, we use either some sort of targeted agent that goes after the genetics, or we use an immune modulator. Okay? So immune therapy or a targeted agent. Why? Uh, why? Because uh, we've actually figured some things out. Um, you know, it's been a hard uh, road of now we can sequence things at a drop of a hat. It costs, you know, less than a few hundred bucks to do the genome, but this was a lot of hard work. And uh, a lot of hard work came before, way before me, and figured out that there are particular mutations in a variety of cancers, and melanoma is a good example where we have these driver mutations. Things happen in the cell where somebody's stepping on the gas. The gas in this case are BRAF and RAS. These are just names of genes. And the changes in the genes vary over the body. I like this graph because it tells us that melanoma is a very heterogeneous disease. It's not one thing. There's not one answer for it either. Um, it comes from melanocytes, the pigment-making cells, but there's different ways to get there. Okay. Well, if we know what genes are wrong, uh, we can turn them off. This is not gene therapy. This is using a, a chemical, so a pill that people can take, that turns off the activity of these mutated genes that we've figured out. 
And this is just an example in 2010 of a clinical trial showing that, gee whiz, it turned the uh, baseline picture to a better looking picture. Trust me, that's, that's the target being hit. And the target in this case was in a person. And the bottom is a, a PET scan showing that that person had a lot of spots where they shouldn't. And then two weeks later, we couldn't find them anymore. Two weeks of taking a pill that turned off the growth of the cancer. Things moved quickly. Um, as, as really, there's been a sea change going on in oncology. Okay? Things are changing. Things are getting better. This, this quickly led to a very large randomized study versus the old way of doing things, which was chemotherapy and melanoma, and showing that taking a pill twice a day improved survival and uh, made the tumors go away longer. Um, that's great. It's a good drug. It's not a perfect drug because it has some side effects, um, such as uh, itching and headache and things. Uh, we're working on that. And the other not perfect thing about that drug is that it didn't work forever. You know, that's the goal. We'd like to get rid of this, not just wound it. You know, that's good. Improving survival is great. Uh, but people are still dying of melanoma. So how do we get around that? And so um, here we are now, 2011, 2012. People are sequencing and working hard late at night. Had an idea. What if we blocked in another spot? And this is just one example of ways that we can get around these very specific um, biochemical changes. So this is now using two medications, both oral pills, that target very specific pathways, and it works better. Turns out, as predicted by a few smarter people, that it's less toxic. So we're getting into a new paradigm in oncology where we can actually decrease toxicity and increase response rates. That's not really how we've done things in the past, but I think it's the future. So... Unfortunately, we still had that problem. While the response rates were high, um, durability was good, it still wasn't a cure. And this is part of the problem was uh, resistance. And I won't go too much into that, but um, now we're in you know, late 2012, and again, people are staying up late trying to work on this problem. So back to the list. So I have targeted agents that go after changes in the cell, and the other ones are immune therapies. What's that doing? What's that about? So immune therapies are, we all want to boost the immune system, right? There's something going wrong. Our immune system's not doing the right thing. Um, I'll tell you, by the end of this lecture, hopefully you'll realize that that's an oversimplification. Um, our immune system's actually doing a lot of stuff, and we don't necessarily need to boost it. We need to change that relationship, Okay. Uh, a drug that's out there that's approved in melanoma as well as kidney cancer is interleukin-2. And it was approved because of the way that curve looks. Patients who respond, no longer does the curve go down to zero. People actually are long-term survivors by immune therapy, and that caught people's eye, obviously, because their patients with cancer spread over their body, all of a sudden it was gone not needing further treatment. So what was that about? Here's an example of how IL-2 could work. This is a, 
a patient um, that uh, came to the cancer center who had a variety of encounters with cancers all in one month, uh, who had a thyroid cancer discovered during evaluation for her breast cancer, and then a lung nodule noted, turned out to be melanoma. All those things treated. She was watched for a little while until, unfortunately, scan showed the cancer was back, and the cancer in this case turned out to be melanoma. Um, and this is a PET scan, and there's a couple bright spots, one under the left arm, there's a bright spot, and then down in the groin area by the bladder, there's another bright spot, and that's the cancer spread. And she chose to do an immune therapy and went through a couple cycles, and now after three, three of these cycles, she was didn't have abnormal bright spots anymore. Cured. She'll call me occasionally. Um, so you're, that's 2008. Um, and it's 2013. She's still alive. No treatment. Nothing. So the problem with interleukin-2 was, well, great. Everybody should get it. Well, everybody does not get interleukin-2. It's a very difficult treatment for select patients. It involves hospitalizations, uh, but it gave us insight, insight that immune therapies can lead to long-term cancer control. So I put Jim Allison's name on here only because that's the first time I remember seeing this slide. I can't remember who I actually got it from. Um, But Jim Allison um, is a gentleman who looked at ways the immune system is regulated and figured out that in this case, a immune cell coming in to fight the job automatically turns itself off. And it makes sense. We want to turn ourselves off, um, at least our immune response. Otherwise, we'd all be itching and diarrhea all the time. I mean, the immune system does stuff. So we want to naturally turn it off. And what Dr. Allison felt was maybe, maybe cancer is taking advantage of some of these things. And, and so instead of actually thinking about turning things on, he, he thought about cutting the brakes. So that's one of the things Dr. Allison worked on. And this is about T cells getting activated, a break happening, and then ipilimumab coming in. This is, this is one of the break cutters that Dr. Allison helped develop. So I threw that back up again um, because, again, thinking about cancer in general, um, we, we think about the drivers of cancer. And, and in one sense, we're thinking, well, it's those immune, it's those um, targeted changes in the genes that are driving it. But there's a chance that there's something else going on. So I, I just threw that out there to, to keep that thought going in your mind for a second. Uh, because when Dr. Allison and company, and a lot of people were involved in this work, um, tested their antibody, they also got this immune-mediated response, this kind of long-term cancer going away. And this is an example of melanoma, um, but this drug's been um, tried in other ones, such as prostate cancer and um, other cancers. So it has some generality going on with it. It improves survival in patients. This is an example of uh, somebody um, overcoming their their melanoma through uh, use of this drug. So... Not perfect, has some problems. That's why we still have medical oncologists, and this isn't family medicine. And that is, um, well, if we're going to cut the brakes on the immune system, it's going to notice. It's going to notice things in the skin. 
So you get rashes or in the colon and you get diarrhea. And so there, there's some issues. But that was 2011. And I'll tell you, uh, we've made some progress on that. Um, I might skip this a little bit only to comment that this theme will come back, and that is we're trying to understand exactly how these drugs are working. And Dr. Rebus uh, up at UCLA was working with a very similar drug to what Dr. Allison developed um, and noted a lot of immune changes going on that puzzled him at first. And in this case, um, he would have patients that, that get the drug and they get T cells coming into the tumor but the, but the cures didn't happen. The responses didn't happen. So something else for a lot of patients was putting the brakes on, holding things back. Okay? That led to our meeting this year. So this is hot off the press, less than two months old. Every year we all migrate to Chicago and sit around and tell each other the latest and greatest. And so this is American Society of Clinical Oncology. And... Instead of just thinking about uh, one checkpoint, uh, people are thinking about tens of checkpoints for how to regulate the immune system. And this um, by Dr. Topelian at Johns Hopkins, is um, she's done some incredible work um, exploring this pathway of PD-1 and PD-L1, another way that cells turn themselves off the immune system. And so she, she showed that... Um, in this pathway, if, again, you block the break, uh, you can get some activity in cancer patients. But um, that activity um, that she showed initially, she's just illustrating here how the expression of this molecule occurred in tumors. Um, but that activity was updated this year. And in this case, um, Dr. Hamid from the Angeles Clinic presented the data for blocking PD-1 in melanoma patients. And um, just to let you know, the way the graph works on the uh, upper right is that everybody starts at zero. If your tumor grows, you go up. If your tumor shrinks, you go down. And so with an injection of an immune stimulant, your tumors go down the majority of time and that those lines flatten out. So pretty gratifying. We have another one of these uh, checkpoint inhibitors and that um, following the patients for, you know, some of these patients past a year, they continue to respond. These are durable, so they continue to respond. And I slipped in here, you might notice that no longer does it just say melanoma. There's melanoma, kidney cancer, lung cancer. Okay, so non-small cell lung cancer, small cell lung cancer. Um, it's being looked at in ovarian cancer, breast cancer, hepatomas. This is going to be a general uh, therapy in cancer. So no longer do we have just chemotherapy on the list. We have some other exciting stuff. And these responses are also leading to people overcoming their cancer for some time. It's early. We still need more data follow-up, but it's promising. Uh, this slide just illustrates some of the challenges we have um, following these patients. Sometimes patients look worse before they look better, um, and we need better markers to tell us that. Um, but again, things are moving so quickly that um, Dr. Topelian actually floated the idea of combination therapy. 
Uh, and she discussed, well, if you have one brake cutter and another brake cutter, uh, just keep cutting. Um, so combination. So use both the uh, blocking that first molecule and blocking the second molecule. Um, and it's already 2013 and we've done it. Okay. And in this case, similar kind of plot. Everybody starts at zero and you want to go down. And the majority of patients, in this case melanoma patients, who got both inhibitors of the, of the breaks, went down. Okay. And they went down pretty dramatically, kind of reminiscent of that first uh, therapy I showed you where people just take a pill and their tumor shrink and it shrinks within two weeks. Those are the type of responses they were seeing with an immune therapy. So independent of the genetics of the tumor, uh, we were seeing pretty significant responses. So there's fine print on these two. Of course, there's toxicity. Of course, we got a lot more work to do. Um, a lot more work to do in terms of managing these medications. Um, but they're giving us some insight into, uh, again, a, a paradigm shift in how do we look at cancers, not just the insides of the cancer where the gene changes are happening, but the outside, all the supporting cells that are there, and can we turn that support into an anti-cancer approach. Okay? And I told you I get to prevention, we're almost there. You have, to, you have to understand treatment before we get to prevention. Okay, so is everybody with me so far? You got it? Okay. Um, so uh, what are we doing in, in the rest of 2013? You know, uh, the rest of 2013, we're now doing more combination studies, um, looking at ways to bring immune cells into the tumor and then ways to unleash them in addition to the PD-1 and PD-L1 pathway. And um, this is just an example like the other one of a, a patient who presented with pretty um, significant disease, brain metastases, and um, substantial amount of melanoma. And at the time, um, the options were few because this was only 2011, and uh, went through interleukin-2, but that was about the same time that we were developing these other inhibitors and, and therapies, and so we started combining them. And in this case, we ultimately got them down to um, no evidence of disease. And I just actually saw this patient today uh, who's not been treated for more than a year, um, doing fine. Okay. So future for melanoma treatments, um, it's very exciting. Um, I think we're going to make some substantial progress. Um, for broader people outside of the clinical trials world soon. Um, so how do we prevent cancer? Now we know how to treat it. Okay, that's great, but you know, that's, that's expensive. Why pe put people through that? Did, did that give us any insight into actually how to prevent this problem in, in the first place? You know, did that give us insight into how this cancer was, was um, started? And we know UVR just means UV, ultraviolet radiation, okay? Another name for the sun. Uh, so we know the sun comes up every day and shines down on us and gives us a complete carcinogen. It's a complete carcinogen because it's both a, what we call a, an initiator, uh, which can cause mutations, and a promoter, which seems to be this general stimulus that, that goes through it. And I gave you some... You know, what is UVA, what is UVB? Sometimes people ask me that. So there are the wavelengths. 
And this is just an illustration of when you sequence tumors, you can actually find different numbers of mutations, as one would expect, depending on how much sun was shining in the spot. Okay? So we know, we know UV does this. And we have been thinking about this a lot as just um, ultraviolet light as a, as a mutagen, you know, causing these, these changes. And this is just a recent schematic. Uh, you can find these all over the place. So bad, bad ultraviolet light causing DNA mutations. Therefore, we need to block the ultraviolet light. You know, it seems simple enough, but I'll just remind you that we've made absolutely no progress with our current public health strategy of trying to prevent ultraviolet light. Um, And so these are just some illustrations of the genes changed. But there's another thing going on, um, and that is what's going on in the environment? What's going on in the external environment to the tumor? And I just showed you therapies that modulate that environment and get rid of cancer in melanoma and some other solid tumors. What if... Um, ultraviolet light is actually doing something other than just mutating DNA. Or something else is going on in the skin other than just mutation of DNA. And that other thing is actually just inflammation. And inflammation, and uh, we all remember our Latin of, you know, uh, rumor, tumor, dolor, calor, which is basically called a sunburn, um, you know, a red, painful thing. So inflammation in the skin. So we have UV light up there is causing inflammation. And we have a lot of things in our life up there causing inflammation. Um, and a lot of, some of this work's actually done here at UCSD um, looking at um, the link between these signals and a molecule called NF-kappa-B and how all these environmental things such as sunlight, stress, being overweight, smoking, uh, they all go through an inflammatory pathway, so stimulating growth. What's going on in the skin? Well, again, up there was UV light, right? And depending on how much UV light you get, you get different immunologic changes in the skin. So a small amount leads to kind of an immune activation, whereas a sunburn actually ultimately leads to an immune quieting in the skin. It kind of gives up. That's enough. I've had it. Okay? So that's tolerance or suppression. So it's a part that I wrestle with a little bit with my colleagues in dermatology because I don't know the answer really to the question, you know, how much sun is safe? You can almost turn it around and say, how much not sun is safe, right? Because I'm a kind of a Darwinian on this. Um, we were meant to be roaming around and gathering food and doing stuff. We're, certainly, I'm not sure we were meant to be mole people, and that's kind of where we're going. Um, so UV definitely has an influence on the immune state of our skin. <coughs> And a huge factor in how it influences that is melanin, right? So melanin, the pigment in our skin. So if you don't have melanin, i.e. me, uh, pasty white guy, um, you are much more susceptible to inflammation in the skin. And if you have a lot of pigmentation, no, 
And we see that clearly with the incidence of melanoma. Um, the less pigment you have, the more melanomas you get. Um, there's, unfortunately, I wish it was that simple. Uh, it's not. This is very complex. We don't quite understand it. If we understood it, the curve would not be going up. The curve for the incidence of melanoma would be going down. But I think we need to think about it a little bit broader than simply UV causes mutation, therefore that's the answer to, to prevention. Something else is going on. Um, this is work um, that's just summarized in a schematic um, that, that pretty much shows the yin and yang of our immune system. And getting back to the, more sim- or the simpler idea of just boosting the immune system. Again, the immune system is, is very complex. And, and it operates in, in an auto-regulatory way. You have a reaction and then you turn it off. And when the skin gets hit by ultraviolet, ultraviolet light, yes, it causes mutations, but it also leads to one of the molecules being interferon. So interferon is produced in the skin. That interferon, great. It has a direct cancer toxic effect. Good molecule. Um, unfortunately, interferon also, after a little while, has a great immune quieting effect and leads to progression of melanomas, apparently, at least in this mouse model. So too much of a good thing, um, as always, um, can lead to problems. So I don't think I probably answered your question on how much sunscreen to apply and which SPF, um, but I hope I just gave you a little bit of information to think about in terms of you know, cancer therapies, what are some of the things that are potentially going to change soon? And with that understanding, you know, how can we better, better approach prevention? Is it just going after those genes and the gene changes? Or is there something more systemic going on um, that we can address? So with that, I... Yeah, are we seeing more melanomas because um, the 80-year-olds were the first one to think of going into a bikini? If I, I have to summarize your question. So, yeah, okay. Um, so, absolutely, there's um, that theory is is very strong. And when you go to the CDC or the American Academy of Dermatology, it's it doesn't take long to click on the um, the picture that shows. The change in our habits. We used to go to the beach, and they show this picture of people sitting at the beach in the 1930s or so, and they have some sort of wool clothing on, and they're all sitting there in lounge chairs asleep. And then you go to now, and you can barely find the bikini or the swimsuit, and everybody looks red on the exposure that they use. And so that could be an answer. Um, the other thing, though, that's happened is a general change in how we're exposing ourselves to the sun. And I'll, I'll say that probably, you know, as we're getting on and on in our society, uh, we're becoming more and more intermittent exposures to sun. So I spend all day inside. Right? Um, I'm lucky to get outside. 
And I recognized this uh, maybe a couple years ago and got rid of my parking permit and um, take alternative transportation just so I get outside. I don't get sun. I'll get sun when my teenage daughter says it's time to go play volleyball once a year and I'll, I'll go get burned. Right, so that's probably absolutely the wrong thing to do. And I think, as in a lot of things, we've made life so convenient and nice that, we're, that we've gotten into some bad habits. And I get red with the sun now. My melanin is low. So is it that I'm getting too much sun? Or is it that, and this is where I get in trouble, and uh, so this is controversial, um, is it that I'm not getting enough chronic sun exposure? And what does chronic sun exposure do? So chronic low-level sun exposure um, can give you melanin. And as I said, melanin is one of the biggest inflammation-dampening things in your skin. And yet we're all getting a little paler. And we know that because we're all getting vitamin D deficient, for example. Um, so we're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to stay out of the sun. But there, there's actually some data to support this. For example, there's a, there's a study comparing farmers to their like-minded Lutheran shopkeepers in the Midwest and showed that the incidence of melanoma and the death rate of melanoma was less in those with chronic sun damage in their skin than those that stayed inside all day. Yeah, there's a lot of humps to just, to just call into question that it's just not that simple. And so maybe it's because you're going to the beach too much. I don't know. Yeah, so now you're going to the other extreme. <laughs> and that's, that's absolutely true. Melanoma happens where the sun doesn't shine. Um, and I'll even say heretical things like, and a lot of my patients um, are offended when I ask them if they've ever been in a tanning bed because they haven't. You know, they're not using tanning beds. They, they got a melanoma on their butt or somewhere. Um, I also, you know, there are melanomas that happen in the esophagus and in the eye and other places. So, so there are clearly melanomas. And remember, I put up that slide that said melanoma is a broad spectrum of disease. I suspect that a, a fraction of them are, are really solar damage related. Those are happening on the head and neck later in life. They have a different genetic profile. Those are, in my mind, pretty clearly driven by sun damage. And I should also put in there that non-melanoma skin cancers, basal cells particularly, that's a one-to-one -one sun damage. And if you want to prevent basal cells and squamous cells, wear sunscreen. Avoid burns. It is causing those things. Okay? But for melanoma, there's, it's a little more complex. And can, can melanomas occur without any sun exposure? Yes. Um, but that's, again, because it's complex. I hate to say it that freckling is a little bit associated as a, as a risk factor for melanoma. So that pigmentation doesn't quite help you out. And that's probably because of the freckling is happening in the background of a particular um, gene in people. You know, it, it belongs to you know, a lineage that maybe came from Ireland. And, and those changes um, are just more susceptible to melanomas. So it's a phenotypic marker of a gene that's there that's making you more susceptible to melanomas, unfortunately, in the white. So the comment is, I can't take vitamin D. I'm low. How much sun should I get? 
Um, brief summary. So um, very good question that um, the simple answer is don't know. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you um, what's generally recommended and why and all the factors. Uh, so it's recommended somewhere between 15 to 30 minutes of some exposure, about 25% of your body surface area exposure, um, between a reasonable hour of 10 and 2. That's for vitamin D. Okay, that'll make you, my dermatology colleagues go crazy that I just said that again, and I'm sorry. Um, because, you know, that, that's causing skin damage. There's UV exposure. And there is, that's going to depend on the latitude you're at, um, the time of year it is, the pigmentation in your skin, all, even your age. That's all going to factor into how much sun do I need to get vitamin D. And taking the two extremes, there are people that believe we need zero sun to get vitamin D because we got it in our pills. Okay? And then there's the other extreme that, well, maybe those pills um, aren't giving us that whatever it is um, to prevent the problem. And um, there's good data that vitamin D supplementation prevents bone loss. Another lecture you're going to have in the future. But um, there's little really sound data about vitamin D supplementation preventing cancer. Okay, it's clearly associated with a lot of malignancies, not just melanoma, breast cancer, some other cancers. Um, So it's a difficult question to answer. And when we use just a little bit of sunscreen, uh, we, we really run a risk, from the vitamin D perspective, of getting rid of all our synthesis. And so one of the reasons, probably, that we're getting vitamin D deficient as a nation, you know, this is not an essential vitamin, right? God did not make vitamin D an essential vitamin. Um, It is now pretty much essential for about a third of the population in the United States, meaning that we have to get it from from our food sources or we don't have enough. And what you know what implications that have it's again kind of a hmm that's interesting you know how does that factor into what we've done to ourselves and you know what what should we do is is not 100% clear so vitamin d um is dependent on a very the synthesis of vitamin d is complex right there's a great slide for it um but it you have precursors of vitamin D in your skin, and part of the way that we get it is ultraviolet light hits those precursors and causes a chemical change, and then things happen. Um, That ultraviolet light is um, pretty down to around the 290 nanometers to 300 nanometers, and a lot of glass uh, will get rid of that, Uh, tinted or not tinted. Um, So... Yeah, you're probably not getting that UV spectrum to give you vitamin D through your windshield. You are getting UVA, a little bit longer wavelength that goes deeper into your skin and causes oxidative damage and wrinkling, but not UVB as much. Oh, for the sun. So are there medications you should be careful about for the sun? Um, uh, yes. Uh, I... I <laughs> The list is kind of long. There are, there are for example, certain antibiotics um, that make you sun-sensitive. Um, um, unfortunately, I have an oncology drug that if you get exposed to the sun and within 10 minutes you get a blistering sunburn. Um, so certainly medications can influence your sun sensitivity. Um, do some of the medications uh, help 
Um, I don't know. Um, you know, people take vitamin C, for example, for its great antioxidant potential. Um, th- there's actually data looking at topical vitamin C and how it influences inflammation in your skin. That's kind of interesting. Um, but I have no idea if oral supplementation does anything for that. So uh, I'm not sure I can get you a good answer for, for that, but it, it, it's a broad question, uh, what medications. There's nothing I think you should, taken from this lecture, absolutely avoid. Just read your medication prescription bottle. <laughs> Sorry. So the basal cell cancers, how are those treated best in the primary setting? And primary setting, um, I mean, you have the lesion, you want to get rid of it. Again, medical oncology, five people have tried to get rid of it, and then they say, well, go see the medical oncologist. That, that's me. So um, the first thing you should do is cut it out. The only time not to cut it out is when it's in a location or that surgery is just not acceptable to the patient. So primary recommendation is to cut it out. So Mohs rather than radiation, you suggest? Um, Mohs is an excellent technique for getting rid of basal cells because the way basal cells go is that they spread out little fingers, and you have to get all those little fingers. And if you go through and you just cut around it, uh, you run the risk of it being recurrent. And so Mohs, uh, which is just surgery, um, allows you to look at all the little edges around for the resection to make sure you got it off. So for basal cells, Mohs is very appropriate. Um, but, you know, if you're looking at the tip of your nose and you have a basal cell on it and somebody's coming at you with a Mohs, you, you pause for a second. I, I completely understand that. And I've seen people, even in those situations, go off for radiation, which is a nice, it's a second choice. Um, the issue with radiation in basal cells is it, is it may not get it long term. And then now you have an unhappy Mohs surgeon who has to deal with not only a larger basal cell, uh, but now in the background of radiation changes that don't let it heal as easily. So th- those are just some of the issues. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So basal cells um, are one of the most common non-melanoma skin cancers, and I, now I'm seeing uh, maybe I should have focused on basal cells. So do basal cells metastasize? Um, rarely. Um, and that's, like I said, uh, I see them when people can't cure them anymore. And one of the situations is that rare case when they spread. Um, so 90-plus percent of basal cells are managed and taken care of without spread. Um, but those that have been around for a while, that have gone through multiple therapies, been resistant to getting rid of, those are the ones that kind of sneak up on you, and all of a sudden you'll find in a lymph node or, heaven forbid, a bone. You know, they can, they can spread through the bloodstream. So um, that's one problem with basal cells um, that I'll see. The other problem is, yeah, after everybody's done, it's still sitting there. And there's no skin that you can bring into that area because it's been irradiated so much, it just wouldn't be viable. So I get those too. So I'll just answer the next question that should be asked. So what do I do about that? You know, I have a, a basal cell cancer. It's not a melanoma. So a basal cell cancer sitting there. It might be painful, might be bleeding. Um, turns out that same theme. So the genetics matter. So what genes are changed in a basal cell? And it turns out that a, most of the basal cells have a mutation in a growth pathway called patch. Not patch atoms, uh, but patch. And patch um, is this protein on the surface. It's changed a lot, and it interacts with something called smoothin. Well, I have a drug that just happens to stop smoothin. 
And so um, there's a, an FDA-approved medication called um, Vismodegib um, on the market. That's a pill you take once a day. Now, don't go run off and say, oh, I don't need my surgery or radiation anymore, because that pill is good for about 10 months on average, and then you get resistance. Remember, that's the theme of those targeted therapies. You get resistance. And there's fine print to it. Uh, you'll lose your hair, your, your taste will go bad, and you get cramps that are really hard to treat. So um, it's not a substitute for getting that thing off. And, uh, but I, I do have some pills. So what about alternatives to Mohs, such as laser surgery to basal cells? Um, that's okay. Um, again, you want to take it off, and you don't want to take off more. And the advantage of Mohs is that you know when to stop. Okay, you can laser it. I don't know what I just did uh, because I don't have a microscopic margin that I can check. And so I, and people will burn things off. So thermal ablation, laser is one technique. Um, and that's appropriate for some small lesions that you're not quite sure of. That's some non-melanoma skin cancer. I'll just zap it. But I wouldn't do that, for example, on the face or uh, another critical spot where you want to Get it, get it once, get it done. Um, but if it's something that's on your arm or hand, uh, sure, it, because it's easy. And uh, it may take care of it for as long as you need it taken care of. I just want to take that risk on my face. Yeah. Yeah. So I put up the 2013 NCCN kind of treatment options. Um, there's going to be. Uh, two more drugs on the next version of that. So a couple more inhibitors are, are coming out. The real exciting kind of combination stuff with the new inhibitors, um, maybe about uh, 12 to, to 18 months, somewhere in that. I mean, um, I, I've really been uh, impressed and, and happy with the relative pace of things. I know things can never be quick enough um, but we're now getting from phase one to closing a phase three within a few years um, for some of this drug development. And, and we need to still do that, obviously, because there's toxicities to understand and patient selection stuff to do. Um, Are yeah. they going to be covered under Medicare? Um, so does Medicare uh, cover the latest good drugs? Of course. Uh, just as Medicare covers all drugs. Um, so <laughs> there could be the donuts in the 20s, 20 percents, and things like that. I mean, so, and that honestly is, uh, that's another hour discussion of, you know, healthcare, healthcare costs. How are we going to control costs? <laughs> what the heck is going on? Um, and I'll even say that um, going back to prevention, we better get better at prevention because the stuff that I do is really expensive. Um, to have these drug development processes uh, going on and to treat metastatic disease is not cheap. And so we definitely do need to understand what's driving these, these cancers better. We definitely need to do more prevention strategies. Um, and that's uh, the challenge I lay down to my dermatology colleagues. So what's my suggestion for prevention? Um, for cancer in general, um, it's the, 
you know, that um, not helpful advice of just have a healthy lifestyle. Um, and what does that mean? Um, all the things up there that were driving inflammation try to minimize. So what I generally hear from my patients is, what supplement should I be on? You know, I saw on the TV that I should be, is it black currants or red currants? <laughs> and, I, and I generally say, you know, it's not. It's just too much currants. Um, in this country, as a general problem, uh, we're too well-nourished. Um, and so um, part of what I would do as a prevention strategy is, you know, working on that. We just had the release of how obesity is now, I think it's 30% of the United States population is obese. Um, our activity level is low. Um, there's still people you'll find smoking. Um, so there's a lot we could work on for prevention. And they all kind of make sense from a, a scientist point of view is just look at those things that feed into that inflammatory pathway <laughs> and minimize them. So the question was about um, what you saw in Dr. Oz. <laughs> and um, I, so um, it might have been, um, so there's different ways of looking at the structure of the skin. One is just with your eyeballs. Oh, that doesn't look right. And dermatologists are very good at that. Um, but people are going, well, what are the dermatologists seeing? What is the variations that they're seeing? Can we pick those up other ways? And, uh, well, you know, we see visible light, but there's a lot more to the spectrum than just visible light. And so there are devices out there that will shine different uh, wavelengths on them and get a feedback. And, and so there are devices that have developed data sets where, they say, okay, you shine this light, you get this feedback, and that, ooh, that was one of those bad lesions that were seen in the past. And so it increases, that's, that's how they, they sell it, it increases the sensitivity of knowing what's the bad lesion versus what's not. Um, and they're, they're, they're slowly coming into practice, and a couple of the barriers that I've heard about are, well, each time you pull the trigger and check a lesion, that's a procedure code. That means the doctor just billed for that pulling of the trigger. And, and it gives you a, a level of certainty, but that level of certainty is not 100%. And so one thing that I've heard that makes dermatologists nervous is, okay, they can go do this you know, and do five procedure codes on somebody, um, but what if one of those things was a melanoma and you know, they didn't cut it off? And so they worry about also the liability side of these, these devices. So I, I think a lot of um, high-volume... I think a lot of high-volume dermatologists are a little skeptical of their utility um, because they, they don't save a lot of money. Uh, they certainly save biopsies. And so that ultimately, they're going to be important, but I, I'm not sure they're just quite prime time yet. Um, and they're going to be important for that person with, oh, gosh... I have to go back for another, you know, biopsy, and they're they're tired of it. On the other hand, you know, the dermatologist is taking off the thing that they're biopsying; it's gone. So, you know, it's just I, again, as dermatologists, I'll just say they don't think I think they just don't think it's quite good enough yet. F photonic biopsies, and why we don't see that, and why the docs don't seem to know anything about it. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> and that's, um, 
You know, so there's lots of different ways to check a margin, if that's what I'm understanding, and Mohs does it through permanent sections, and that's just the way we've done it in this country. They've also started to look at insight to hybridization, which is a gene chip way of just doing it at the margins. I honestly am not familiar with that. I've got to go to Europe. <laughs> so I, I spoke about other cancers but didn't quite mention brain cancers for um, immune therapies. And... Um, uh, as always, a good question, difficult to answer. Um, so brain cancers are special for a variety of reasons. Um, one is that you don't have a lot of room to work with, and so some of our immune therapies cause swelling and, and inflammation, and, and so we, we use these checkpoint inhibitors in the, those scenarios, and sometimes we get into issues about swelling. It's not in other cancers. The other thing is there's the blood-brain barrier that prevents drugs from crossing. Um, that is probably less of a real practical problem than we paint it to be because tumors generally don't have a normal vasculature anyways. And so, for example, melanoma spreads to the brain, and I can treat it with immune therapies just fine. I can treat it with targeted therapies, these pills, just fine. Um, and it responds generally about as well as it does in other parts of the body. Um, well, how about gliomas, glioblastomas, these other things? And so, you know, uh, people are doing immune therapies for those too. Um, and uh, of the multiple cancers I saw being attacked at uh, ASCO this year, um, which was our meeting this year, uh, I didn't actually see a glioblastoma on the list for, for whatever reason. Uh, but I, I don't think that there'll be a fundamental reason why it can't be on the list. Uh, and whether it's a, you know, a few percent of the patients benefiting or more, uh, it's hard to predict. Yeah, so cancer of unknown origin. And does immune therapy work for that stuff too? Well, what is that, cancer of unknown origin? It's actually a broad group of, of cancers. For example, melanoma patients, about 5% of metastatic melanoma patients I have no idea where it came from. It's just metastatic melanoma. And there was never a history of a lesion or something like that. So sometimes people call that um, you know, unknown primary or unknown source. Uh, but sometimes we just have cancer, a very poorly differentiated tumor, and we can't tell where the heck this came from. Maybe it was the colon. Maybe it was um, someplace else. And well, we're getting less and less of those for a couple reasons. One is our imaging techniques are better. We can find those very small lesions um, that were hidden someplace else. And our diagnostic techniques are better in the sense that I can sequence things now. So it's not uncommon for me to send off for molecular profiling of a tumor. That helps me in therapy, but it also helps me say, well, where did this come from? What were the genetic changes that led to this? And sometimes we can trace back to, aha, it had the typical X mutation in it. So it's becoming less and less odd. Uh, common. That said, it still happens. Um, so I'm not aware of a clinical trial that's actually addressed that group of patients. It's going to be, again, a heterogeneous group. But hopefully um, I didn't waste your time with just melanoma, but showed you that the themes of targeted therapies and immune modulation should apply across the board, whether it's just lung cancer or unknown origin kind of cancer. I, I think we're getting away from treating oh, you got lung cancer, here's your drug. Now we're getting a little more personalized. Here's your lung cancer, 
these are the genes that are changed, and these are the pathways we're going to try to try to get this with, rather than I'll just write for your chemo. So things are things are advancing a little bit. Okay, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.